Welcome to the 16th episode of the Middle East Institute at the National University of Singapore podcast series, Boots of the Ground, Security in Transition in the Middle East and Beyond. In this series, we look at the future of warfare. We will see uniformed soldier or boots on the ground being replaced by private military company, autonomous weapon system and cyber weapon. My name is Alessandro Arduino, and I will be the co-host for this series, along with my colleague, Amim Lutfi. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. We're very delighted and excited to have with us today Dr. Noah Coburn, who is a sociocultural anthropologist who focuses on political structures, violence in the Middle East and Central Asia. He's currently in, uh, working at the Bennington College, where he teaches courses on the overlap of politics, power, and culture, and has conducted fieldwork in uh, you know, in addition to Afghanistan, in Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, Nepal, India, and Turkey. Uh, he's, he's, he's a very accomplished pub, uh, author who's published reports for various think tanks in Washington, in addition to uh, academic journals, uh, including the U United States Institute of Peace, Afghan Research and Evaluation Unit, and the Aghan Trust for Culture. So thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Noah Coburn. Absolutely, my pleasure. Uh, I really think the f series that you have organized is fascinating and I'm uh, privileged just to participate in it. Noah, thank you very much for being with us today. I would like to start our conversation first and foremost saying that I really enjoyed your most recent book, Under Contract, The Invisible Workers of the American Global War. Uh, often we read and we hear about high-level dealings and geopolitics, for example, just right now, that led NATO-led alliance for fight the global war on terror. Recent uh, information about U.S. and ISAF leaving Afghanistan, and the focus is centered on the military, the boots on the ground leaving Kabul right now. But in your book, you tell us uh, that uh, behind this broad coalition, there was even an ever broader coalition that entangled uh, labor exporting state, private contracting company, subcontractors, brokers that work together to supply all the labor necessary for the war effort. I know that line out this entire geography requires a lot of time, but we are really hoping that you could lay for our listener all a wide contours of this former and informal infrastructure. The floor is yours, Noah. Thank you. And I should preface this all by saying as an anthropologist, my approach is, is highly ethnographic. And so I, I view a lot of these things from the ground upwards. Uh, so a lot of my understanding here comes not from the international relations literature, but more from, frankly, how, how these contractors experience the war. And, and that's a lot of what I'm trying to get at. But in terms of the broad, broad contours, and I go to this more in my book, of course, the idea of contracting and mercenaries is, is nowhere, not a new phenomenon in warfare. It is worth mentioning, though, that in the post 9-11 wars, it has really looked quite different than it did in the past. In the first Gulf War in the 1990s, uh, that the United States was involved in. There was one contractor for every 100 soldiers. At the height of the war in Afghanistan, there was one contractor for every one American soldier in Afghanistan. During the Trump administration, when numbers started to draw down, the balance shifted in the other direction, and there were three contractors for every one soldier on the ground. This is a real 
shift. We, we've had know a lot about a long history of the military industrial complex, but now we see the real labor, the real work of war is increasingly being done by what are referred to by the military as TCNs, third country nationals, who are really mostly citizens of the global south from poorer countries who uh, migrate towards these conference, uh, conflict zones and are paid by contractors or more frequently subcontractors and subcontractors. This of course creates some really odd contradictions when you go to a US military base in Afghanistan until recently, oftentimes it was not a US soldier who was standing in that watchtower. It was a Nepali contractor who was doing the work of guarding that American base. And, and there's these odd contradictions where I talk about of the fact that frankly, the Nepalis oftentimes had far more in common with the Afghans uh, than they did with the Americans. And yet you had the, uh, the Nepalis guarding that American base from those Afghans. And what we see here, and I think this is back to some of these bigger lessons, is we see a real outsourcing of labor, but also an outsourcing of death and, in, uh, and injury, where uh, the political consequences of a wounded or killed American soldier are so high that these have been replaced by these non-Western bodies. Uh, and inherent in this is also a fundamental lack of transparency in this new system. Uh, it makes the war less visible to everybody, even to the soldiers on the ground themselves. So my real aim in the book is to understand how these Nepalis in particular, but also these other uh, groups are perceiving and understanding that conflict and what it might mean for war going forward. Uh, thank you so much for laying out that broad picture. I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned that that it is the the, the process of, of of outsourcing military work to private companies has a very long, a much longer trajectory that gets perhaps accelerated after the during the war on terror. Um, because you focus on a group, as you mentioned, on Nepalis who actually have been in this line of work or at least in this sort of you know economic sectors for perhaps uh, at least a century, if not more, um, with being having been recruited to India, Singapore, and of course, England. It was very fascinating you mentioned, I mean, in, in your book, you mentioned one place that, that it's easy to forget looking at the current system of, of British recruitment of Nepalis. Looking at it, even today, it's easy to forget that the empire is over or the colonialism has ended. Um, so can you sketch out some of like how how did these some of these older systems of recruitment Nepali soldiers and Nepali military workers uh, how did it work and in what ways did perhaps the U.S. manage to piggyback themselves and give them kind of a boost or head start by piggybacking themselves onto this older system? Let me start by saying I'm fascinated by the ways in which America. Uh, is so unaware of its own imperialism. And even more so, they're unaware of the way that the American empire builds on these previous empires and builds upon some of these uh, pathways and processes of empire. So for example, in Afghanistan, by far the majority of private security contractors from the global south are from Nepal. And if you ask a US soldier, why are all these people who are guarding your base from Nepal, they don't actually know. Why are they from Nepal and not from Bangladesh, for example? However, if you ask a British soldier, they almost always know immediately. 
The reason is because of this Gurkha legacy. The British have been recruiting Nepalese into the British army and previously the, the Imperial army um, since the early 19th century. Um, you had hundreds of thousands of Nepalese fighting in World War I and World War II on the, uh, for, for the British during that period. And in a lot of ways, that uh, has left this legacy of martial race theory of the brave, proud Gurkha. Uh, and that has a really fraught political history in uh, Britain. And to this day, we still see a continuation of the process and about 200 Nepalese are recruited into the British army every year still. Uh, and for a lot, and this really impacts young people in Nepal because the stories of Nepalese going into the British army, succeeding, bringing money home and living the good life uh, continue to circulate in Nepali society. However, with only 200 going each year, the year I, I observed the recruitment process, there were 6,000 applicants. And so you see a very small number actually getting in. And what this leaves is it leaves literally thousands of young men who have dropped out of school, who have perhaps assumed some debt during the training process, trying to get into the British Army, who are now looking for employment. And where do they find employment? They oftentimes find employment in this much riskier sector of private security contractors. So you have the Americans inheriting these Gurkha soldiers, these uh, proud, brave warriors, and even inheriting some of these understandings of the martial race theory without really understanding where it came from. Yeah, in more than one year that we are talking about private military, private security, and even mercenary in our podcast, uh, we always look uh, at the perspective of outsourcing security. I really like what you put on the table now talking about outsourcing dead and injuries. As you just mentioned, the Gurkha legacy, uh, you make a very provocative argument in your book that as much as one would like to criticize the continued imperial nostalgia in the current British day recruitment system, it is still uh, different what we are seeing now with the American. Uh, it's still much better than what the American offer from the perspective of the soldier. Uh, it's a way out of a previous system uh, and uh, in which way the two differs? It's a terrific question. And while I'm not a historian, this project has made me think much more about the history of both the British and the American empires. And thinking ahead, how will the US empire be remembered? And I think one of the ways it will be remembered is as an empire of contracts. And contracts are specific legal documents. They have a start date, they have an end date, and they have no lasting obligation to the individual involved in the contract. So if you are a contractor working for the US military, the day your contract is over, you are no longer have any relationship to the US military. So while not apologizing at all for forms of British imperialism, I just wanna to point to the difference. When you talk about British subjugation, subjugation at least defines subjects as subjects. And there is some relationship between the subject and that center of power. So while this is highly problematic, it creates this enduring, uh, this enduring relationship. So to this day in Nepal, there are British 
uh, retirement homes and British medical facilities for veterans of the British Army that have returned to Nepal. Um, and you saw when uh, there was some talk of eliminating uh, the recruitment of Nepalese, you saw a great sort of pushback from white British uh, uh, citizens pushing to continue that, that, that colonial relationship, which it really is. At the same time, in contrast with that, uh, I spoke with many Nepalese who were injured while working for uh, on a US contract. And the treatment here is entirely different. One of the Nepalese I talked to was involved in a uh, attack and was injured during that attack and was terminated the day after the attack. What this means is to a large extent, these Nepalese and other uh, TCNs are not eligible for a lot of the support system that a typical veteran would receive if they are injured in that war in some ways. And I think this is connected more broadly to what is going to be a sort of impermanent legacy that we see uh, uh, the Americans having in a place like Afghanistan. Biden's pullout of Afghanistan continues today and we see bases being looted and the bases there, I've done some writing about the way they are built out of primarily out of plywood and, and containers that are being pulled out of the bases, chopped up and being resold. This is in real contrast to, for example, the Soviet presence in Afghanistan, where the Soviets built these large neighborhoods, they built these large dams, there was sort of a lasting Soviet architecture. A lot of what the, this empire of contracts is, is it's paper, it's money exchanging hands. And once the contract is over, it all sort of blows away in the wind. I mean, that's fascinating. And, and one of the real strengths of the work or what, what I really enjoyed was that it tells us not just how or what things, um, how things look like on paper, but how they operate really on the ground, both through its, its sort of formal and informal practices. And one thing it seemed clear from the various examples and ethnographic cases that you discussed that, that it seems like roadblocks were, or choke points were, were in almost like a structural feature of the entire apparatus. It seemed like they were built on purpose uh, because as one would expect, I mean, the roadblocks slow down certain people and from the perspective of, of soldiers who are trying to go abroad, they might be a hindrance, but they create their own circulation and their own economy um, around themselves to, for, you know, by, by having like these set of brokers who say we can help you get over these roadblocks for a certain fees. Um, so, and, and this figure of broker or dalal is, as in, in sort of Nepali, it seems to be a constant presence throughout from Nepal to Afghanistan and even beyond. Would you be able to, can you outline some of the main roles that these brokers play in the recruitment process and maybe perhaps afterwards as well? Absolutely. And I wanna tie this back to some of my previous comments about the lack of transparency around this system. The lack of transparency, I argue, is a deliberate feature of the system. If the system was more transparent, it would be easier for uh, these workers to navigate it and much harder to exploit them. But instead, as you refer to them, there are these series of roadblocks. They're, the roadblocks are visas, they're contracts, they're crossing borders, they're purchasing plane tickets. These are all things you need to know how to do, pieces of paper you need to get. And every step along the way, there is a broker who can help you with this. 
Um, and I put help in, in air quotes here, even though it's a podcast. Um, you have at the, the earliest stage, you have village brokers who will go to the village in Nepal and connect you with a broker then who is in Kathmandu. And that broker in Kathmandu will promise you a job in one of these war zones. And oftentimes you then get handed off to a broker in uh, India and you might spend some time in India waiting for a visa to come through, waiting for a contract to come through. And then that broker will hand you off to another broker in Kabul potentially. And there's really then this global network of brokers. I even encountered one uh, couple where one of the brokers was Indian and one of the brokers was Afghan and they had married. So, I mean, it's creating these even kinship networks that then extend across these, these, uh, these borders, but they are then deeply linked to uh, the corruption around uh, contracts in Afghanistan more, more generally. So you have other contracts supplying not just labor, but supplying goods to these bases. Um, you have oftentimes Afghan firms that are connected to international firms who are providing fuel, who are providing food. Uh, and a lot of this work is being done by a similar network of uh, brokers. And ultimately, it is this group that profits the most from from the war. It is not the individual contractors themselves. The individual contractors themselves oftentimes are lucky if they can earn sort of a, a decent wage for a few months and return home with it. But these brokers earn actually exponential fees by, by charging an, in a, a typical worker, maybe three months salary is pretty normal to secure that initial uh, contract. And in the worst cases, it's oftentimes these brokers who are committing the most egregious human rights violations. Uh, in the cases that I found where brokers were uh, kidnapped or imprisoned or detained in some ways where passports were taken from them, it was oftentimes the, the brokers that were actually the, the ones that were doing that. And I, I don't think that this is, uh, again, a uh, sign that the transnational corporations that oversee all of this are somehow clean and pure, but it allows them actually to keep their hands clean in many ways and um, make sure that some of those, uh, that exploitation then gets outsourced to these brokers so that they can sort of claim innocence from it. Um, since none of this would work if you did not have these uh, massive webs of human trafficking. Um, but the companies don't want to be uh, seen as involved in that uh, human trafficking. So it get, then gets outsourced to these brokers who, who do the trafficking for them. It's great, especially when you mentioned that an empire of contract is on paper. And nowadays we can see all these bases that are folding like a castle of card. Uh, and you also mentioned that it's a different legacy from the previous Soviet one. Uh, when uh, the Soviet, the Red Army retired from Afghanistan, uh, uh, everybody was betting that uh, Najibullah regime uh, was going to fall uh, in a matter of hours and the Mujahideen will size the day. It didn't go like this. Najibullah stayed in power for more than three years. Uh, and then the problem started just when the Russian founding was, uh, was dwindling. In, uh, in this respect, uh, uh, the Soviet led uh, not only, as you mentioned, building, but also a legacy of mechanics uh, of uh, people that were able to repair helicopter, tank, uh, and make the war machine work. This is, doesn't look today is the same thing. 
So I don't know if we can point this as a problem in this relationship of contracts, but we see that the Afghanistan National Army is leaving bases faster than the Taliban are able to occupy it. In recent days, more than a thousand of uh, ANA soldiers have been fleeing uh, in uh, Tajikistan, while on the Uzbek border, they are pushing back into Afghanistan. Having said that, uh, I have quite a question related to the gray area. You just mentioned that this system of broker uh, is a part of a very important gray area, is one important clog in the contracting machine. So in securing supply bases uh, uh, and workers, uh, these brokers are said that sometimes they pay protection money, especially to the Taliban-connected warlord. To what extent do you think that this uh, uh, statement is true? I think the important thing to realize about the war in Afghanistan is the reason that this is the longest war that the United States has been involved in is not due to ideological reasons, but is due to the fact that so people, few people really want to see it end. You have a situation where the Afghan ruling elite has benefited from international attention. They've benefited from aid flows into the country. As you point out, there's this shadowy network of brokers and commanders who provide the war with their supplies and then and the labor and they benefit from that. And these shadowy networks and commanders are in turn tied to the Afghan ruling elite in a lot of different ways. Uh, one of the things I point to in the book is I don't argue that the individual contractors per se are perpetuating the war, but one of the important things to point out about an individual contractor is quite different to a soldier is that individual contractor, as soon as the war ends, so does his paycheck. So inherently, most of the uh, contractors I interviewed were not particularly eager to see the war end because that would be the end of their jobs and they would have to go find a, another war elsewhere. So I do in some of my classes this mapping exercise of all the different actors, uh, both international and Afghan, that are involved in the war over the last 20 years. And one of the things that you realize as you do this mapping exercise and you start asking, so who on this map really wants to see the war end now? Um, and, and the answer usually comes down to Afghan civilians want the war to end and U.S. soldiers want to see the war end. But almost every other group has some sort of uh, investment in seeing the conflict continue at least at some sort of low level. So I think this mode of contracting um, has really perpetuated uh, some of these incentives uh, that have made this the, the longest war that the U.S. has uh, been involved in. Uh, since we're on to speaking about you know gray areas and suspicious places, one of the play, one of the, the the sites of war that your work beautifully sort of paints are these hotel-like spaces. I mean, and I would want you know if you could describe them more clearly, they're they're uh, way stations somehow like um, waypoints or midway houses out of soldier out of jobs so soldiers who are out of jobs or who are looking to transition into another work or who don't have visas um, but these places are so central to your work I mean I'm, I'm wondering if you could like lay out and describe maybe sketch out a little bit for our listeners what these places look like and what function they serve this is a great question and there's been some 
preliminary work done on these places, but I think this is sort of a rich area for, for further research to sketch out what some of them look like. There, there's, there are a whole sort of variety of them, but to give you one example, uh, there's a, a neighborhood in New Delhi um, that is primarily a backpacker neighborhood, but it's also become known as a place where uh, Nepalis and other uh, uh, South Asians not from India will come to meet with brokers and meet with labor recruiters in a place to wait for visas. Um, so one of the places that uh, I spent quite a bit of time was a Nepali restaurant that um, well, on the face of it was aimed at sort of Western tourists, it had little ca cafe tables set up on the street. But if you walked in past the tables and past the kitchens and kitchen and up this sort of dark set of stairs, there's actually these two large extensive rooms that were just filled with young Nepali men who were staying in, in very low cost um, hotels in the area around. And this is where they would come for Nepali food, to meet, to gather, to exchange gossip, to try to figure out who had gotten a contract, who, what had you heard from this broker? What had you heard from that broker? And it became, it's this sort of hub of uh, these workers coming and going from these different war zones um, in a place where information is exchanged uh, and um, the young Nepalis try to make sense of some of the shadowy promises, again, that these brokers are being made. And the brokers in turn are sort of telling these stories um, that reinforce uh, the need for you to pay these broker fees um, for the most part. But I would say that th this is just one example and it's sort of tied more broadly to a whole series of offices around the Kathmandu airport, for example, which is oftentimes where um, uh, one of the first initial steps that some of these workers will take in going to these labor offices, um, which I can talk more about later, but are, are, are these very interesting places because labor recruitment firms are, are again, very immaterial. Um, they, they don't have much in them because they don't do anything other than connect a worker to a contract and send them along their way. Um, so there, there's something very impermanent about these spaces. And then at the other end of the spectrum, it's worth pointing out that um, I think oftentimes the Western image of war in Afghanistan has these sort of strong permanent US bases in the middle. And yet these bases are, first of all, oftentimes inhabited by a lot of these contractors. So an American base might not have primarily Americans on it. Americans might be in the minority, but there's also been these constellation of private bases around it. So oftentimes the fuel for a base is not stored on the base itself, but a contracting firm builds a fuel depot down the road and builds huge walls with barbed wire around it and guards it by uh, with Nepali Gurkhas. Um, and if you encounter this base, um, oftentimes the Afghan communities that I've interviewed near them will say, oh, that's an American base. It looks like an American base. It acts like an American base. And yet it is um, in no, in not an American base at all because it's being run by this private contracting firm. Um, and I'll say these less visible spaces, these are also again where um, some of the, the worst stories of exploitation came out that I heard. Um, and the, the contractors themselves will often tell you that they would much rather be on one of the larger bases surrounded by international soldiers because 
uh, they were less likely to sort of be exploited and abused in those settings than in these satellite constellations of private bases where um, there was no real oversight, no one watching what was going on there. Um, though these are also the, the Nepalis that oftentimes knew the most about the corruption and knew about the schemes because they were witnessing, um, uh, and I talk about this some in the book, but witnessing literally uh, one uh, uh, tanker of ga uh, fuel driving off to a U.S. base and the next one driving off to be sold at the market. Um, and uh, these, these, this infrastructure that has built up around uh, what we think of as a more traditional military industrial complex is sort of this fascinating uh, world that's difficult to access. Oh, it's, it's very unique, your point of view, uh, and you have been for a long time in Afghanistan researching this, and I was just thinking that if some of our listeners jump in in the middle of our podcast, it looks more we are talking about human resource management practice than the future of warfare, but in respect, uh, it is it is not uh, a news. Uh, you just mentioned that peace uh, will mean the end of the job for these contractors. Uh, and it's the same sentence that an old Italian chap who used to say, and is Niccolo Machiavelli. And he was saying that the prince cannot rely on mercenary for, for the same reason. And why I say prince, of course, I'm not referring to Eric Prince. Mm -hmm. uh, in uh, your book also, uh, you not look only at Gurkha and the Nepalese, but you compare them with uh, other workers from different countries, including India, Turkey, and Georgia. Uh, in your opinion, uh, in what ways did the experience of war differ depending on nationality? Especially uh, if the Indian Turks of the Georgian recollect their life in Afghanistan in a different way compared to the Nepalese one. That's a great question. And it really gets at, I think, some of the ways that conflict is beginning to shift. Because while you see some differences in nationality, a lot of this has much more to do with positions and companies than it does uh, the experience of, of being a member of a certain country's military. So what you get is you get some similar flows. So from Nepal, you have flows of private security contractors primarily. From Turkey, a lot of the engineers and architects of the, these bases and infrastructure are coming. Um, India provides a lot of those that do the management of HR and IT. Um, the Philippines provides a lot of the cooks and the cleaners that do the the labor of, of uh, sort of the hospitality of the base, for lack of a better word. But at the end of the day, oftentimes when these individuals would recount their experiences, one of the things that I found quite interesting was there were certain companies that had, uh, had um, reputations for uh, being more or less benevolent, shall we say. Um, companies that took care of their workers, uh, provided them a good salary, provided them nice places to stay. And then other companies that tended to be much more exploitative would put them in large barracks, would not always pay them in time. And so what ended up happening is if I was interviewing a Nepali uh, and an Indian who had worked for company A that was very benevolent, their experience was actually much more similar 
then the Nepali who had worked for company A, and then had also the Nepali who had worked for company B, which was much more exploitative. So I think one of the things that you're going to find is as, as these individuals go on and as war, if it continues to evolve in this manner, you're going to not say, oh, I fought for the French or I fought for the Germans. You're going to say, I fought for DynCorp or I fought for Supreme or I fought for one of these other companies. And that then will be uh, the hallmark potentially of, of conflict in the future. Uh, since we're on the question of Hallmark, uh, we had in one of our previous podcasts, Joshua Reno um, come here and he, he spoke about military, how military waste animates a range of uncanny markets and social scenes where this, this waste kind of ends up. And I'm now tempted to think about um, if some of these workers who, or who had been mobilized by the entire logistics and military machinery that was produced for the global war on terror. And if these workers can now in a way also be thought of as military waste, as people who might soon be left out of jobs or who might soon be looking for similar nature of work and trying to find work in other places. Um, and as we kind of, you know, as, as Alex sort of mentioned in his earlier comments, as we're in, at this point in time when we're seeing the bases close down in Afghanistan, what do you think would happen to these workers uh, from various countries now that the war in Afghanistan and Iraq is over? That's a terrific question. And I think a lot of the themes from uh, Joshua Renault's work resonate uh, in, in my work as well. I tend to think of these workers perhaps not as military waste, as almost military fuel. I've been doing a little follow-up research recently with some of the Nepalis and others who I interviewed to see where they are now, to see where they're going. Uh, and the interesting thing is the ways in which they are looking for that next war. So a lot of them, yes, are going to uh, look for jobs in Iraq, uh, where the U.S. still has a significant contracting presence. But a lot of them are actually looking towards Gulf countries, where the Gulf countries have increasingly relied on private contractors to uh, expand their militaries. Uh, beyond that, you then get shadowier or shadowier groups that tend to hire these contractors as well. I've been talking to uh, Nepalis who are looking to work on oil rigs off of West Africa, who are looking to go to the DRC, who are looking to go to South Sudan, all of these places. And one of the things that I think you're going to see is while the role of contractors in Afghanistan was not at all transparent, they are moving into a world that's even less transparent, um, where we see um, and, and I think the United States relying so heavily on contractors for the past 20 years, in fact, has in many ways legitimized the practice globally. It's no longer an outlier. It is no longer um, something that uh, can, can be easily condemned. And you're going to see, and you're already seeing um, uh, countries like Russia relying on it more and more in, in places like Syria. Uh, and you're going to see these global companies acting more and more like militaries as they decide to protect themselves and uh, their enterprises wherever they are. 
Yes, as you mentioned uh, about uh, the Gurga brand before, uh, uh, and we can see that this brand probably is still quite alive and profitable. A, bra a, a brand that is related to the fact that Gurkha fighters are considered brave, ruthless, but extremely loyal. And it comes from the 19th century, from uh, the British Empire. Uh, but I, I would like to ask a specific question. When I was working on one of my previous book, China Private Army, looking at China Private Security Firm, I witnessed that in China, the Gurkha brand resonated extremely well. But then they had a problem of fake Gurkha. And by fake Gurkha, I mean just a simple Nepalese citizen that uh, in a way on the other day, pumped up their CV and were mentioning non-existent military affiliation and background uh, as a Gurkha. Have you had in your experience in Afghanistan heard similar story? And also in your opinion, can a Gurkha brand find a new life uh, uh, as you just mentioned now, not only in Africa, uh, but also following the line uh, of Russia and China looking to expand quite fast their private security military sector? Absolutely. And I think in, in some ways this is already happening. And I, I didn't find many of them, but I did interview a handful of Nepalis who had gone on to do private security details in Russia and in China. So you can see that already the brand in many ways is sort of stretched beyond the border. Um, but I will say the Nepalis themselves have done a good job of cultivating and uh, and and making sure that the brand remains robust. In, in many ways, you would pay a Nepali, uh, while, while you're not paying Nepalis as much as a US soldier, you actually end up paying them more than you would be paying a, a Bangladeshi or someone from uh, uh, Sri Lanka um, or some other country. So they've already sort of established that their value is above uh, the market for a typical uh, person from a poor South Asian country, for example. In terms of then the authenticity of what does it mean to be a Gurkha, this then there is much play with uh, because in fact, it, it's, it's difficult to define a Gurkha. Um, oftentimes when Nepalis use it, they mean it to, to be somebody who has gone off and fought in the British army. And yet also those Nepalis who went off and fought in the Indian army are oftentimes referred to as Gurkhas. And as you point out, uh, Nepalis who have served in the Nepali military are then sort of one step below that and Nepali citizens who have no military uh, experience one step below that. And yet they oftentimes in this international market will still use the Nepali, uh, the, the Gurkha name um, as a way of, of commanding more, more value. Um, and what we see as some of these private security contractors have gotten more savvy about how this works is um, if you are supplying Gurkhas to uh, the U.S. Embassy, for example, um, you, what the company that's now doing this does is they hire, let's say, one or two, uh, quote, air quote, real Gurkhas who have British military experience and speak English very well. They'll hire one or two of them for every 20 to 30 Nepalis that they hire who don't have any military experience or have very light military experience from the Nepali um, army. And then they charge the uh, U.S. Embassy and tell the U.S. Embassy that all of the, the guards are uh, Gurkhas when really uh, in terms of a, a, a quote real Gurkha, you only have two Gurkhas there who are potentially real Gurkhas. Um, but the, the head Gurkhas um, are, are the ones that command the most. 
And oftentimes those on the embassy don't even realize that there's a, a very strict hierarchy of the, the Nepali who has that British military experience may be getting paid four or five times the rate that the Nepali who doesn't have that experience. Um, and I really do think that this is going to be something that we see continue to evolve um, and continue to um, as it circulates um, in other places like, like Russia and China. Thank you so much for that. I, I want to ask a question more specifically from the perspective of our listeners here in Singapore. I know your book mentions it. It doesn't go into great detail about it. Um, about uh, Nepalis coming and working for the Singapore police force. Um, can you give us some, some insight into how the system works and are there communities of former Singaporean police officers currently in Nepal? And uh, as an offshoot mentioned that, that, that after it turned out that the, the private contractors in Afghanistan couldn't find the required number of British Kurkas, um, the second best thing that they had were Singaporean police officers. Um, so how did that, that, how did that happen? How did the switch from, from British Kurkas to Singaporean happen as well? Uh, well, it's a great question and fascinating. I was able to interview uh, probably about a dozen um, Nepalis who had been in the Singapore police to, and to see the ways in which it very much dovetailed with the process of um, the British uh, recruitment. So for example, uh, recruitment into the Singapore police happened simultaneously with uh, recruitment into the British army. Um, and, um, and, and the tests to bring them in are, are very similar. The Singapore police is thought of as one significant step below the British military, uh, in part that right now that's because if you join the British military, there's a clear path uh, for Nepalis to British citizenship. So if you serve in the British army for three or four years, uh, there's a um, clear way for you to gain citizenship for your, you and your immediate family. In Singapore, uh, the Gurkhas don't get that. Um, so what you get instead is you get these communities who they, they can bring their families and they live in compounds in uh, Singapore. So I also spoke with several Nepalis who are the sons and daughters of Singaporean police who had grown up in Singapore, um, but not been Singaporean citizens. And then what happens is once their father is at the age of retirement, they all as a family sort of move back to Nepal. Um, and for some of these Nepalis who grew up in Singapore, this is a very odd experience of, of shifting back to Nepal. But then that, that uh, community of Nepalis who had been in Singapore is then a very tightly knit one back in Nepal. And they, they've built a clinic. So there's a private hospital just for uh, Singaporean police that's entirely funded within the community. Um, and I was able to go to a couple of these community gatherings. So on a major holidays and festivals, they all come together. Um, and I, I didn't get enough of a chance to sort of chase this down statistically, but there's also clear intermarriage going on, right? So Singaporean police sons and daughters will end up uh, married to each other. And you have these sort of kinship networks within the Singaporean police. And you can argue that you're almost sort of generating a, a new caste system um, based upon the, this, this type of labor. Um, and I think what you have is the, 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 the history of Nepalis in the Singapore is obviously very deep, but what you're getting is I think some similar processes that are replicating themselves in the Gulf, where you have these very wealthy oil states um, that don't have a lot of citizens that want to do the policing, want to do the military 
uh, labor. Um, so, of course, when you go to Dubai, a lot of the, the security at the airport, the security at the hotels, the, um, uh, the lower level military folks are um, similarly of the, this building on this Gurkha brand. Um, so in some ways, this, the, the Singapore model is a very old model uh, uh, that was generated by the British colonial period. And in other ways, it, it may be a model for the future for a lot of these other wealthy countries. Um, no, on a different note, uh, one of the issues that we have been discussing and debated quite extensively in our podcast uh, is how to regulate private military and security industry. We have an extensive cooperation with the International Code of Conduct. We have been at our, in our podcast, the UN Working Group on Mercenary Activity. And as you mentioned several times uh, during today's podcast, and especially in your book, uh, the main issue is transparency. Uh, with several layers of contracting, providing a way for state to avoid responsibility, especially for the care of injured of lame soldier. Uh, in your book, you underline very well the necessity and the importance of regulation. So in your opinion, and from your uh, point of view, I've been so long in Afghanistan interviewing uh, Gurkha and Nepalese contractors in Nepal. What kind of step the international community have to push in order to avoid to commit the same problem, to improve transparency, to improve regulation? And do you think that uh, a kind of market enforces mechanism is just enough in uh, providing better accountability and incentivizing labor care? Uh, what's your opinion on this? Let me begin by saying any of my recommendations here, uh, I think, will be difficult to implement. Uh, this is a very complex issue. And similar to the, the war, I would say there's a lot of incentives to not have it be regulated. So I think in many ways, uh, Regulation is the only path forward, and yet it will be a very difficult path forward. And, and why is it so difficult? Well, pause for a minute and, and returning to this idea of, of what the, some of these labor firms and private security firms do. Um, a private security firm, in some ways, especially one that's set up internationally in Dubai, is someone on a laptop who is communicating with a broker in uh, Nepal, sending these Nepalis to uh, Dubai and then sending them to Afghanistan, giving them some guns and then um, uh, basing them uh, at an American base or otherwise in, in Afghanistan. Now, let's say, for example, that this, uh, this broker firm, this uh, private security contracting firm, uh, commits some egregious human rights error, uh, uh, abuses and gets shut down. Um, what we've seen repeatedly is that guy with his laptop sitting in that office, closes up his laptop, walks out the door, walks down the hallway, opens another office door, puts a new uh, name on the door, and just starts the business all over again. Because there's not a lot of uh, infrastructure, there's not a lot of investment here, it's all based on these personal connections. He then brings some of these folks with him. Um, and they just restart the business. And, and frankly, this is, as you referred to, Eric Prince, this is why Eric Prince has had so many uh, reincarnations, right? Um, these uh, companies, e even the most egregious ones, are able to sort of easily uh, change their names, set up shop someplace else. Um, all that being said, I think really the only, the only path forward um, is to uh, hold these firms more accountable. 
Um, one of the uh, slightly odd suggestions I've heard that I think might actually be one of the, the few things that could be implemented fairly easily is having some sort of uh, certification, uh, certificate of uh, non-human rights abuse. Um, it's sort of like the way you can go to the grocery store and buy a certified organic vegetable. Um, if you're from a certified organic farm, you have to fulfill certain regulations, and then all of a sudden you get a boost up in that contracting process. So a firm that, it, that says it's going to be more transparent and agrees to follow certain regulations, perhaps it then gets some sort of star next to it, and that enables it to get better contracts, something like that. Um, but let me also say that um, in some ways, the, the cat is already out of the bag. Um, the, uh, the United States has set the precedent for this, this widespread contracting. Europe has, uh, met most European countries have, have done some similar uh, moves. And, and now, again, this is something that's uh, gained legitimacy across the globe. Um, and so if you don't have uh, the United States and uh, some of these Western European countries, particularly uh, uh, Germany and uh, the Great Britain, um, enforcing some much stricter regulations um, soon, uh, I think you're going to pass a certain tipping point where uh, a lot of the conventional rules of war um, are out the window because uh, conventional rules of war apply primarily to, uh, uh, to uh, soldiers and uh, the, the world of contractors is, is much uh, difficult, more difficult to, to regulate. Uh, thank you so much. I mean, this has been a fascinating discussion, but unfortunately, we're running close to time. Um, in the end, I want to ask you a kind of broad question that we've been presenting to all of our listeners, and it is, uh, what, in your opinion, would warfare look like 30 years from now? And I'm wondering if you could answer it from the perspective of maybe what would be the enduring legacies of the privatization of the American global war on terror? Well, I think a lot of the predictions that you read commonly in international relations literature about um, cyber warfare, about drones, about reliance on special forces, I think all of that is, for the most part, accurate. I think, from my perspective, the piece that probably doesn't get enough attention is the way that the global divide between rich and poor is going to and continue to be exacerbated and continue to shape the way that war is being fought. In the United States in particular, but also uh, Western Europe, there is such a political cost for a dead soldier that we are spending all this money to fight wars through drain, drones, through um, uh, military equipment to make sure that we don't lose any soldiers. And yet at the same time, there are all these other workers and all these other um, necessary human components of the conflict that I believe are still going to be there. Uh, they need to be setting up the bases that, that fly the drones out of. They need to be providing the fuel. They need to be guarding the bases. And we are going to continue to see insurgent groups and groups like the Taliban and al-Shabaab that uh, if, if they need, to, if they are going to be fought uh, against, are going to be confronted with some sort of military force. You are going to see uh, individuals like these Nepalis increasingly pushed forward into that front line. Um, so I think what you're really going to see is uh, a lot of the new technology 
uh, it changes some aspects of how the war is fought, but really it changes those aspects for the Westerners who are involved in the war. And increasingly you will have, have wars fought by proxy between uh, citizens of uh, poor uh, global South countries, um, basically through contracts provided by uh, companies in the global North. Well, thank you so much, Noah, for this very exciting talk. I mean, we could have gone on for much longer and we hope to have you soon in some forum or another, I mean, once COVID eases. Um, so thank you so much for, for joining us today. And thank you to all our listeners for joining us today. Uh, do keep us sending us your feedback and comments and suggestions. And we hope to meet you soon in our next podcast as well. Thank you, everyone.